She'll probably get rid of that. Oh, my bad. But I was putting it on vibrate, man. I was putting it on vibrate. That's what the beat was. But you set it to vibrate, it beeps. I know. That's what it was, though. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is Namus, and I'm here with my brother, Scientific, as usual. Um, we have a special episode of the Humans Are Interesting podcast, and we have a special guest for the special episode. Go ahead and introduce yourself. How you doing? My name is Dustin, and I'm a law enforcement officer in Southern California. So today's episode is called Do All Lives Really Matter? And so we figured what better way to discuss such a topic um, than bring in a member of law enforcement to discuss this with two black Americans. Yeah. So just to kind of start this thing off, we're going to ask you a few questions. Sure. And uh, just so you can kind of give us some background on what your job looks like and a little insight into law enforcement. Okay. So uh, what does a normal shift look like? Like what is your, your, your daily routine when you clock in? Yeah. So as of right now, I work in uh, a community policing unit. Uh, so our job mainly is to get out in the community and do outreach programs uh, neighborhood watch meetings, school presentations, uh, youth prevention programs, things of that nature. Um, when I was in a patrol setting and worked out on the streets, a typical day starts early in the morning or late at night, depending on what shift uh, you have. And you get all your gear ready and you go to what we call a briefing. Every single day you start in a, a patrol briefing uh, where there's information that's presented on recent crime trends or what happened in the previous shift, mm. and just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Yeah. Uh, so you'll share special bulletins, special people that are wanted, uh, new training things that are coming out, uh, what's going on in the news sometimes gets brought up. And once the briefing is done, you hit the road. So you'll get in your car and you'll either answer radio calls or you'll conduct some type of uh, proactive police work. What got you out of patrol work and into more of the community kind of setting that you're in now? Uh, just personally, I definitely feel like I have a desire to work more directly with the community itself. In a community policing environment, uh, that's you get, to, you get to know your students, you get to know the people in your streets, you get to know the business owners, uh, and it, uh, you feel like you have an opportunity to actually solve problems instead mm. of just put Band-Aids on issues. Yeah. All right. Well, sticking with kind of uh, protocol, what is like traffic stop protocol? Yeah. Like what's average for just a traffic stop? So there's kind of a saying in the business, and that is there is no routine traffic mm -hmm. stop. You'll hear that term brought up on the news frequently. Oh, it was just a routine traffic stop. In our business, uh, traffic stops are one of the most dangerous police activities. Mm -hmm. Statistically speaking, if you look at the FBI statistics, probably in the top three every year is vehicle stops, which result mm -hmm. in some type of felonious assault on an officer. So those are very dangerous for us. So uh, when we see a violation or we have some type of reason to stop a vehicle, when we pull over that car, it's very important, obviously, that you pull over. Sometimes people want to get to a parking lot or get somewhere where it's properly lit. And that's okay. When the officer or deputy comes to your car, uh, we like the windows to be rolled down, at a minimum the driver's mm -hmm. window. When you're being pulled over and you're reaching around for things or you're stopped and the, and the deputy or officer's you know, standing outside your car and you're reaching for stuff, reaching for wallets, reaching in glove boxes, that heightens our senses a little bit because you could be reaching for a driver's license, but you also could be reaching for a weapon. So I know sometimes um, civilians, we want to feel like we um, our rights aren't being violated. And some of us don't really know our full rights, specifically in a traffic stop. So, sure. so how much compliance does a civilian need to follow? For example, can they leave the window 
cracked or, or, or halfway down. If, if an officer asks you to step out of the car, um, do they have to give a justification for it? You know, can you say no if they haven't said, if they haven't given you a reason? Um, can you film the interaction? You know, is, is that against any policy if you have your phone set to video and you're recording it? If they ask you to stop filming, do you have to stop legally? Sure. In response to your rights, uh, if you do not have a Fourth Amendment waiver, then you have a Fourth Amendment right to protect yourself against unreasonable searches and seizures. The question is, okay, well, the Fourth Amendment exists, and I'm being asked to step out of my car, or I don't want to roll my window down, or I don't want to roll it down very much, or can I film and all this stuff. In regards to the window, the issue with that could become, if it's heavy traffic, I physically cannot hear you. And also because there, if there are narcotics or alcohol or something in the vehicle that's not supposed to be there, you know, that inhibits my ability to, to look for those things. Uh, so we like the windows rolled down. And it's also a courtesy. I mean, if you go through a drive through restaurant, you don't try and talk through the crack in your window. Most people roll their window <laughs> down because it's a courtesy. It's a human interaction, right? So we encourage people to roll their windows down. In regards to being asked to step out of the vehicle... In 1977, there was a Supreme Court decision, Pennsylvania versus Mims, which basically said that a police officer during the course of a traffic stop can ask the driver to step out of the vehicle. And then there was a later decision as well that covered the passengers, uh, Maryland versus Wilson. Um, And the officer does not have to give an explanation. Now, it's always a courteous thing as an officer when you're talking to somebody to give explanations about what you're doing. Is it illegal not to give an explanation? No, but it's the right thing to do most of the time, to tell people why you're doing what you're doing. Is it illegal to not get out of the car? At that point, if the officer has a a reason to get you out of the car and you're not complying, technically that is a misdemeanor under 148 PC in, in California. But I could understand in that moment as a driver feeling concerned because most of the time when an officer asks you to step out of the car... It sounds like you're about to go to jail. Yeah, and it sounds like I'm going to get, you know, a field sobriety test. I'm going to get arrested or they're going to search my car. Uh, During like a traffic stop, what reason would you need for you to reach for your weapon? So when an officer or a deputy draws their firearm, there's a very articulable reason why they're feeling the need Mm -hmm. to do that. Uh, I don't just walk around town with my with my gun in my (laughs) hand. So generally speaking, the reason is because all of a sudden there's a threat there that warrants me feeling like I could potentially need lethal force. Otherwise, I wouldn't get a handgun out. I would do something else. Hot tip number one for people driving around not to get guns pointed at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, do not reach for stuff, number one. Don't carry weapons in the passenger compartment of your car. Uh, and that could be knives, bats, or you know, or firearms, obviously. So my question with that is, um, and I didn't say this in the beginning, so, and I want to make sure I say this now. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, I am a, a, a hip hop and spoken word recording artist for a living. And I did a poem about law enforcement and the relationship to the black community. Um, Dustin here, him and some of his, his colleagues came across the video somehow. They watched the video, but they contacted me out of the blue and they asked me, they said, hey, um, Namas, would you be willing to come and sit down with us and discuss how both law enforcement and the community can together better the community. And so first I just wanted to say thank you to Dustin for and and his comrades for mm-hmm. for reaching out that way. That really meant a lot to me. Sure. Um and the only reason we're having this dialogue now is because they took the first step to reach out to me. So I really appreciate that. So one thing that you said in that conversation when you were talking about good police work and and kind of identifying potential gang members is if you're in a certain block radius 
and you have a decal of the local sports team on the back of your car, you are probably a part of a specific game. Therefore, when you see that car, there's a certain threat level in your mind. There's a certain potential to want to stop this car because you think you might be preventing a crime from happening or catching a criminal. Does that, that, that sound about right? Yeah, I can explain further. Sure. Yeah. So, and then my response to that was, if one of the signs of a potential gang member is the decal of a local sports team, I see a problem with that logic like immediately. I mean, it's the local sports team. They could just be a fan of the local team, right? Does that, does that not sound like a, a reasonable, logical deduction? Yes, and there are different sports organizations for whatever reason that certain gangs will choose uh, to put on their car or choose to wear their jerseys. In this specific region, there are two separate gang sets that wear two separate professional sports teams' attire. In one neighborhood, if they normally wear this sports team's jersey, but there's a separate jersey that's coming through or a separate decal that's driving through the neighborhood at 2 in the morning, we can assume, not not with any definitive information, but there's a lot of assumptions that can be made about what is that car with those four people doing with that sticker in this neighborhood driving through this other gang's territory. And a lot of that can be said based on, in our region specifically, just the type or just the brand or just the, the jersey or colors that they're choosing to have. It does seem unreasonable. If that's your only reason, that would, it's, it's part of, I guess, is, is the point. It's, it's one indicator of potential criminal activity, but it's not necessarily the one, only, the one and only reason that we're going to use to stop and talk to somebody. It's what we call the totality of the circumstances. And that makes a lot of sense when, when you put it that way. I, I, I understand that logic. And I, I think another thing that kind of trips me up with that, though, is when you talk about the kind of the rich elite business class of white America um, and the mass amounts of drugs and illegal activity that flow through that community. Um, how, how does the logic that you just used translate to that group of people? If you see a white dude in a three-piece suit with a brand new BMW, he's not getting pro- he's not getting pulled over, right? It depends on what you're looking for. I would say, by and large, a typical street cop is not looking to pull over the senior citizen driving the the Mercedes 500. That's probably close to a fact, because by and large, most street cops are looking to prevent street crimes. So when we are experiencing a, a high flux in gang activity or high flux in vehicle theft, vehicle burglaries, we're looking for people that are committing those types of crimes because that's what we're actively investigating. So I would understand to a certain extent that it could appear frustrating that, well, the white lady driving the Land Rover isn't getting stopped, but yet the 18-year-old Hispanic male is getting stopped with the same sticker. And why is that? And I, and as a citizen, I would understand the frustration there. Um, what does work look like uh, the day after a civilian's been killed, or if the community thinks uh, the killing was unjust? What does that look like for you guys? I think well, I think a lot of it depends too on how close the incident mm-hmm. is. Uh, there is a heightened sense of awareness, I think, from from our standpoint after those after those incidents happen, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of people unfortunately lump us into 
another agency, you know, 3,000 miles away. And I would say much like the community doesn't like to be labeled by the actions of one or two, that also goes for law enforcement. And sometimes it's very frustrating for us as a law enforcement community here in, in this region to be lumped in with the thoughts and opinions of a law enforcement agency right. halfway, you know, miles away. halfway across the country. Right. Uh, so that does happen, and that can be very frustrating for us. Uh, but I would say in terms of any shooting, whether that's a police officer being killed or a member of the public, it's sad all the way around. Mm-hmm. We view shootings as tragedies, regardless of who's killed. I think a lot of guys in our station watch the videos and form opinions, much like the public watches videos and forms opinions. And, and I can imagine, well, I, I should say, I can't imagine what it's like to be in some of these situations. Um, it has to be extremely difficult to be a police officer and, and make split second decisions and then be basically judged right. for, from those that split moment for the rest of your life. Yes. I mean, I, I can't imagine what that kind of pressure is like. But one thing that I think um, is really difficult for the black community or not even specifically the black community, but any community that is, that is speaking out is that it feels like no one from the police force is ever willing to acknowledge that a killing was unjust. It feels like anytime it happens, everyone who wears your badge is going to protect your badge and will never say a bad thing about another law enforcement officer. And so when that happens, I think it continues this divide and makes the people more weary of all police because we feel like, well, the police are showing their true colors. They're, they can't even admit that in some of these situations, the killing was unjust. So, so I guess my question to you is, um, in the last five years with the multitude of stories that have broken, would you personally sit, agree or say that any of the killings were unjust? Yes. I, I would say recently, a lot of the shootings, when we look at them from our Southern California mindset about how we do policing here and the tactics that we use, there are a lot of red flags that we see in some of these shootings in other states. There are shootings that have happened that I feel like I would have handled much differently. I, I don't know if it was handled differently, if there still would have been a shooting at that, at that call or that incident. But there are definitely times, and we are the best trained law enforcement in the country, in my opinion, California. So there are things when we look at it and go, yeah, I wouldn't have done it that way. And maybe that would have changed the whole nature of that contact. Uh, but it's hard for us to sit there and go, that's not justified. Because he might be legally justified per his state procedures and laws, but that doesn't mean it's morally justified. It might've, he might've been able to handle it a different way and potentially save that person's life. Now there is uh, one particular shooting that happened in, I believe South Carolina, where an individual was running away from the police officer, I believe was unarmed at the time. And the officer fired and shot and killed the suspect while he was running away. In my mind, based on everything I know about law enforcement, I have a hard time justifying what that officer did. So I'm assuming that he's going to be investigated, potentially prosecuted, because I don't see the, I don't see there being any way that a police department is going to be able to explain what that officer did was, was justified. Right. So when that happens, when that happens, when you see something yourself that you think is morally wrong as a police officer, why does it feel like we never hear any of you guys speaking up with something as obvious as that? Uh, I think you probably would, but that 
goes back to the whole relationship aspect between law enforcement and the community. If there are not those conversations happening, we're not, as a law enforcement community, we're not going to seek out a conversation to talk about how one of our brothers, you know, shot and killed somebody for no reason. We're not just going to seek to tell the world that. Uh, if we're asked in the confines of conversations like this, I think most cops will be completely honest and admit that we're not perfect and there are people within our profession that are not perfect. There are people in our profession that should not be police officers. And I don't think you you would talk to anybody that would disagree with that statement. And I have no issue saying that. If a law enforcement officer spoke outwardly about another law enforcement officer, I can guarantee you that that is going to change the perception of all cops um, to the rest of the community. I understand. And I think as a law enforcement community, we could do a better job at communicating with the public about even some of our dirty laundry, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I can assure you that there are definite checks and balances within our agencies uh, to hold people accountable. I know that there are a lot of people that think, you know, it's this family and, and it all gets swept under the rug and nobody ever gets fired and nobody ever gets prosecuted. Uh, that is not the case. And the days of maybe 50 years ago when stuff happened and we just kind of swept under the rug and, and didn't talk about it, those are over. There are no police officers that on the street that are going to lie for me. Nobody's planting guns and planting evidence. There's not that kind of activity that's going on. And if anybody ever did that, there is not a police officer in the world that I know of that would lie and put his career in jeopardy to save this other person. And I think I think transparency on any level is good. Sure. You know, we like our politicians being transparent, yeah. um, like any leaders to be transparent. So I think it's good people hear this because I think there is kind of an underlying feeling, whether it's true or not, that, you know, officers will never speak out. You know, there are some people who do wrong. We're past the days of hiding stuff. I this whole thing of planting evidence. A lot of times people, well, you planted that there. That to me is such a slap in the face to my profession that I would even do that. Number one, it doesn't make reasonable sense because I'm not going to put my entire career in jeopardy to potentially arrest somebody for a misdemeanor. That, that, I mean, it makes no sense when you think about it. So two things on that. One, earlier you agreed and admitted that there are some people that shouldn't be police officers that are. Yes. So if you can agree that there are bad cops that shouldn't be police officers, then how could you also not agree that some cops might still do these things that you're saying are done? Yeah, okay, I, I agree with, uh, you're right. I agree that there are people that shouldn't be police officers and there are cases where there are reports of uh, investigations of police officers breaking the law and planting evidence or taking evidence. You know, we've had cases of police officers that are breaking into evidence lockers and stealing narcotics and selling it or using it. Again, I just want to make people aware that that's not the norm. Right. And when when every time there's a police interaction, there's an assumption that, well, you got to watch out because they might plant evidence, that couldn't be farther from the truth. That Those are isolated incidents. That is not the norm. And we don't want to be judged by the one guy that, that does something like that. I'm glad you said that because I think that relates to so many things happening right now in the perception of many communities by other communities. A lot of times when we see that kind of thing happening in the police force, then unjustly all of cops get this, this bad name, right? When we see stories about radical Islam, then Muslims as a whole will get a bad name and a bad reputation. Yes. And in the same breath, when we see certain people in the black community maybe shooting police officers or calling for the killing of cops, 
then any person who holds the, the, the Black Lives Matter banner gets associated with that. And the movement itself gets associated with these are cop killers. Yes. Which isn't fair either. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I wanted to address uh, the filming of police officers during law enforcement contacts. And, that, and it extends even beyond traffic stops. You are well within your right to film a police officer in public doing their job as long as it does not delay or somehow inhibit that officer from the regular duties that they're trying to do. So what if they say, give me your phone? I would say that's a problem. If you feel, and this extends beyond just phones, if you feel like your rights are being violated and you think that there's a problem, you can demand to see a supervisor, but it's always better, generally speaking, unless your life is being put into danger, it's always better to be compliant and deal with it on the back end. I think the problem is if you feel like the officer that you're dealing with is abusing his power, that phone recording is the only power I have. So him telling me to give it to him, I'm naturally not going to want to give it to him because I'm thinking this is the only thing saving me right now. This is the only thing that will prevent him from crossing a line. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, I'm fearful of giving it up because of what could happen to me. But at the same time, I don't want to provoke him. What do I do? I think it can depend case by case. If the officer, again, has a reason to believe that you're potentially calling somebody, because a lot of people say, well, I'm filming, but they're actually texting. Or I'm filming, but I'm actually <laughs> calling. <laughs> well, that can put, that is a problem. We, as officers on a traffic stop, do not want you calling or texting people on a stop. And you might say, well, it's harmless. I'm calling my boss. I'm calling my kid's school because I'm going to be late now that you're stopping me. Well, you very well could be calling somebody with a firearm to come assault me because you know that you've got a warrant and you're going to jail. And that has happened. If the officer says, turn your phone off or give me the phone, he now is crossing into some uncomfortable territory legally. Are you going to push the issue there on the stop and potentially create something that doesn't need to be created? Or can you just give him the phone and then start the complaint process after? Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I understand it. I still don't know if that really fixes the problem in the moment. You know what I mean? If I'm, again, We're told if, that people can record us. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. A common theme of the Black Lives Matter movement has to do with the disproportionate killing of blacks by police than whites in America. And a common pushback is um, the, the fact and the numbers of that more white people are dying than blacks in a year. The major piece that people are missing in that, though, is the this per capita. I'm going to read something real quick and then we can discuss it. In 2015, the Washington Post launched a real-time database to track fatal police shootings, and the project continues this year. According to the most recent census data, there are nearly 160 million more white people in America than there are black people. White people making up roughly 62% of the U.S. population, but only 49% of those who are killed by police officers. African Americans, however, account for 24% of those fatally shot and killed by the police, despite being just 13% of the U.S. population. That means black Americans are two and a half times as likely as white Americans to be shot and killed by police officers. Of all the unarmed people shot and killed by police in 2015, 40% of them were black men, even though black men make up just 6% of the nation's population. So what is your perception or your feelings of the Black Lives Matter movement? 
when I see Black Lives Matter movements, protests, social media posts, interviews, it's difficult. I sense a lot of frustration on the part of that community about how they've been treated, a lot of which has been going on, you know, arguably for, for you know, decades. Mm-hmm. So I get the history associated with it. I think the Black Lives Matter movement struggles with leadership and a strong central agenda. It, it looks like a lot of unorganized protests and, and people just mad for the sake of being mad. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of the frustrations are based in things that aren't necessarily true when I look at it from my perspective, which is unique. Um, and so our my goal, partly driven by BLM, has been to really bridge that gap and offer a different perspective to that movement. Um, so if I say to you, Black Lives Matter, what is your response to that? Like, what do you what do you, what comes to your head? A, an ignorant, uneducated response is, well, yeah, everybody matters. I mean, when I hear that. Because I'm not familiar with the movement, I'm not a member right. of the African American community, and I'm not necessarily aware of the the history and a part of that. I grew up in Southern California. Uh, I I think well, yeah, that's of course that's true because everybody matters. That's what I think. When when you respond to the saying or the hashtag Black Lives Matter with saying All Lives Matter to me and to others in this community, it shows one that you don't understand the reason for the movement or the reason of those choice of words. Um, and two, if you do understand it, it's extremely dismissive of our plight. I agree with you. So the way that you said, of course, black lives matter. That's what I think when I see people say all lives matter, of course, all lives matter. You should be wondering why I'm saying black lives matter. For example, the three of us, we let's say we went to Danny's together, you know, like 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 back back the old days. The old you know? days, right? We go, we get, we're going, to, we're going at midnight. We're gonna get the grits, we're gonna get the pancakes. I like the creamy grits. Nobody what gets can I the say? steak though. The waiter leaves, takes the order, comes back, and he brings me my food, and he brings you your food, but he doesn't bring science his food. Ten minutes go by, he still doesn't have his food. The next time the guy comes around, I'm gonna be like, hey, science needs his food. I'm not gonna say, hey, we all need our food, because we have our food. Yeah. So when you say Black Lives Matter, it's a response to the perception that some law enforcement is acting as if our lives don't. It's not to say that we're better. It's not to say our lives matter more than anyone else's. We're trying to get at zero. We're, the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to get black folks to the same place as everybody else. That's what Black Lives Matter means. Like, hey, we're human beings, too. Not we're superior, not we're greater, not that other lives don't. It's that our lives matter as well. And I think that's a a really important point to make because a lot of people don't understand that that is what the words mean. That is what the hashtag means. And they think we're making it exclusive. They think that we're saying our lives matter more or or they think we're saying that police officers lives don't matter. No, that's that's not what this has ever been about. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, in, in society all the time, you see uh, certain causes that focus on one thing, you know, and it's not that unusual, you know, uh, if somebody has a, a cancer rally, I'm not going to run up there and be like, well, my, I have a disease too. All disease matter, you know, like, right. I, so yeah. that's why there's a kind of a frustration there sometimes, because if it was called only Black Lives Matter, then I would have an issue with it, right. of course. And it's just kind of taken as an assumption. Of course, all lives matter. 
but we're drawing attention to this particular issue. And you see it all the time, like I said, in different areas yeah, they of have, life. They have Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Right. You know what I mean? Where they all wear pink. Like, if you're doing a Breast Cancer Awareness Month, no one is going to come up and say, hey, lung cancer awareness <laughs> needs to be talked about too. Prostate cancer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What do you guys say to the response from the white community, I guess you could say? What What is your response, which is very common nowadays of, and, and there's a lot of people in the elite communities that are saying you guys only want to focus on the few that are being killed by the police instead of the thousands that are being killed by each other. And that's a in in, hmm. in the white community. That's a big hotbed of right. why do they only care about it when a cop shoots them? There's thousands of young African-American teenagers or people being killed by each other in Chicago. And they don't want to talk about that. What is the response from from Black Lives Matter or you two individually? Uh, do you want to respond first or would you like me to? You go ahead. Make sure to catch us next time for part two of Do All Lives Really Matter? <laughs>